The current economic crisis is making us all scratch our heads and think about how so many people could have been wrong for so long on the governance and regulation of our financial markets. Could it be that the so-called risk management models that we use have become too complex for their own good and therefore did not warn us of the banking crisis that was about to come? Stefan Schultes is Professor of Management Science at Judge Business School. He thinks so. I would definitely say that the that in the banking sector, the risk management systems are not functioning very well. I think that's very clear for everyone. Um, the The way risk management has evolved in in uh, in the banking industry and also in in many other industries is that it has almost become a branch of engineering. Um, risk managers seem to be producing very, very complicated models that are essentially black boxes that try to correlate certain time series and certain other things that we know from, hist- from historical data. And then the outcomes, outcomes of these models are, are given to the managers essentially in a this-is-the-right-answer type way. Um, I don't think that's a particularly good way of doing risk management. Perhaps that's something that we now realise in retrospect, that these risk management models are now flawed in a way that we didn't understand before. Well, I think, I think that, is, that is now widely, widely recognised and, and people understand that we cannot rely on computers alone. Professor Schultes believes that a good old-fashioned dollop of intuition could help correct the imbalance in these risk management models. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about about intuition. Where does intuition come from? I think in- intuition is essentially has evolved over millions of years and it has helped us to survive. And what has helped us to survive over those million years was speed of reaction. We had to be very quick. When a Neanderthal heard a twig crack he couldn't sort of make a calculation, what's the chance that this was a tiger? He had to run, right? So there was an immediate reaction. And intuition is very quick. But in, in order to be quick, we have to have shortcuts, Eurist, mental heuristics, as the psychologists say. For example, we do a stereotype all the time. We, um, we tend to look for confirming evidence rather than play devil's advocate with our own views of the of the world and other shortcomings so and 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 that's the that's the downside of intuition this is you know where modeling can can help to enhance the intuition by providing essentially a test bed so you know if you have a you have your intuition that leads to one perceived outcome a model should allow you to see some other potential outcomes, and not just as outcomes, but you should also be able to interact with the model, to play with it. And do you think that's what went wrong, that we thought of the economic risk model management structure as an absolute, as something that, that was a business tool, but really it didn't have flexibility? We just thought we followed these rules and, and the, the rules would make us successful. Yes, I think that's, that's part of that. Um, the, the, the issue is really to connect the intuition with the, with the analytical side. If the risk management models reinforced our mental abilities rather than attempting to replace them, 
they would result in more realistic outcomes, and this would help improve our economic forecasting, says Professor Scholters. I think absolutely the, the, the recession is an opportunity for that sort of thinking. I mean, it's an opportunity for all sorts of new research in, 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 in finance, that's for sure. But this is certainly one of the angles that I think would be very fruitful to follow up on. So do you think there's any way that we can say, well, look, in a couple of years' time, Sky, guys, we will have um, adapted and tweaked these risk management modelling structures and they'll be better? I think we'll have to try things out. Right. I mean, I can't promise that anything will be better in a couple of years' time, but if we don't try things out, I'm sure that nothing will be better in a couple of years' time or 10 years' time. Um, I, I'd like to see some experimentation on to what works and what doesn't work in terms of connecting models with the, the decision-making processes of the people who take the big decisions. I mean, my experience in, in business, not just in banking, is that the models do still not take managers out of their fixed views. There's too often a managerial view to begin with, and then the models are tweaked to support that managerial view, right? be it an acquisition of, a, of another bank or whatever it might be. And, and we have to get out of this. Now, if, if you have a very complex engineering-type model, then you can't possibly see behind the tweaking because it's such a complicated thing. You can do anything with such models. If it's a simple model, you can't easily tweak it because people understand what is behind, lies behind the model. And we don't do enough of that sort of simple modeling that goes one step beyond back of the envelope, but it's sort of between back of the envelope and the big computer models in the cellars and in the basements of the of the big banks. But there's still no going back to the caveman uh, treading on the twig and relying on intuition. So, so, you know, it is very much a balance as we go forward. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. There's no way for us... I mean, the, the, the situation today is hugely more complicated than in the Stone Age, and there's no way for us to get away from thorough, cold-blooded analysis. I mean, it has to be done, but it has to be done in a better way than we do it today. Dr. Paul Kuterman, Director of Studies in Economics, also thinks that we can improve business in 2009 by, well, not changing a thing, but just thinking more positively. He argues that forecasts about the economy can become self-fulfilling prophecies. So the basic idea is that people react to situations that they perceive themselves to be in rather than just to situations that they are actually in. People tend to take very real actions on the basis of their perceptions. Now, for example, if you were to take a bank run, perhaps with a very small modicum of truth, if you like, people were queuing outside a bank to withdraw money, and a rumor were to start about the bank being unsound, then that rumor has the character of a self-fulfilling prophecy because more and more customers will try to get their money out while they still can in fact, leading the bank to be unsound and go into insolvency. We saw that with Northern Rock, didn't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, that applies to the entire economy. Uh, a health, healthy functioning economy really is all about confidence. And really, in particularly in recessions, the confidence that we have in the soundness of the firms in the economy can really be hugely influenced by even fairly insubstantial signals because people are 
trying to draw deep inferences from even small signals. So is it better to talk about the green shoots of recovery or to admit, as Ed Balls, the Education Secretary, did recently, that the world could be entering a very, very serious depression? Dr Kuterman again. Think about where our beliefs really come from. How do we form our beliefs about how much confidence we can place in firms that we deal with, either as customers or as producers? We look to experts, to pundits, to, to commentators, uh, to the media. Uh, and the point about the media is, of course, that millions of people see the same commentary and the same announcement or prognostication simultaneously. So it stands to reason that media is hugely influential because this forecast or commentary provide a focal point to millions of people to coordinate their economic choices as consumers, producers, buyers, sellers, investors, savers, and so on and so forth. And, well, there may be nothing new in this analysis. As the economist Keynes noted in a previous world depression, it's all a bit of a beauty contest anyway. In his general theory, uh, in Chapter 12, in fact, Keynes has this most convincing answer of how perceptions affect uh, real parts of the economy. Uh, and this analogy is the beauty contest, which uh, I've been looking for historical examples, but I'd like to take newspaper accounts about the fact that there were such beauty contests in England in the early years of the 20th century where newspapers would print a large number of photographs, I must say, in those days uh, of women, um, you know, those old days. Uh, and then people would have to write in and say which or six faces they liked the most. People who picked the most popular face were automatically entered into a raffle and then they could win prizes on that basis. Now, of course, in that kind of a contest, you should not really go by your own idea of what is the most attractive feature in a face. You should really go along with what other people, what you think other people will choose as the beautiful face. So it's basically a follow my leader, a self-fulfilling prophecy again, that they pick this one because they think everybody else is going to pick this That's one. That's right, exactly. So people are really looking to second guess other people's choices. And the sophisticated ones are really trying to second guess these other people second-guessing and so on and so forth. It's an infinite process of second-guessing. So that then leads us on to the stock market today, the financial sector, and what you term as herd rule investments. I mean, that must be uh, an explanation for the situation we now find ourselves in with the collapse of the financial sector. Yes, I, w I would think so, because uh, in almost every case, we do not want to be out on a limb. We do not want to be the one that had a very brave uh, prognostication or, or a belief of our own and then were caught out, if you like, making huge losses as investors or having uh, your bet on the wrong thing. So there's a tendency in circumstances such as this for us to be looking to others to see what other people are doing and then go along with the flow, go along with the herd. Some think that pulling up the hatches is not a good way for recession-hit businesses to manage their profit and loss accounts. Instead, well, they should be braver and introduce serious innovation into their business models.
Professor Jadeep Prabhu is director of the Centre for India and Global Business. I think that's the most natural response. Whenever times are tough, uh, managers uh, first panic and then start cutting costs. Um, and I think the logic or the underlying reasoning is is somewhat obvious. Business is really about two things. It's about money coming in and money going out. And when the money coming in starts to dry up, then you have to, in order to balance the books, start to reduce your costs, the money going out. So I think it's a natural response in a recession. But if you keep doing that, presumably you could end up with just one man and a dog yeah. and, and your whole company disintegrating. So there must be another X factor to make it a success. I think uh, the problem with that, with cutting costs, is of course it's a natural response, but I think it ignores um, the, the bigger picture, if we may put it that way. So as I said, business is about money coming in and money going out. And just focusing on costs ignores the fact that there may be opportunities now to not just reduce costs in an obvious way, maybe to, to change your cost structure to reduce it in a very creative, systematic way, but more importantly, to think about the revenue side of the equation, to think about how you might creatively start to increase the revenue side of your model, even though, of course, times are tough and that's going to be difficult. Um, you know, uh, the tough times might actually force you to be creative about thinking about how you might innovate in order to offer people reasons to buy your products or services and therefore increase your revenues in that, in that way. Cutting costs may be one way of managing business change when times are tough and credit is hard to come by. But even a slimmed-down research and development team can reap rewards. Here's a business success story from Procter & Gamble. Professor Prabhu. The Procter & Gamble story is a very interesting one. Now, it's not necessarily the case that they were responding to a, a recession, but they were facing tough times as an organization, as a company. And uh, so if we look at Procter & Gamble around the year 2000, it was uh, a very successful company uh, with a long history, uh, but they had been doing things in a particular way. And if we look particularly at that business model in terms of how they did innovation and R&D, it was a very traditional business model. Um, they had huge investments in R&D. They did it all in-house. They employed a huge number of uh, scientists uh, with a advanced degrees, um, and they had huge R&D budgets. Um, they had a, a large number of patents and so on. But that model was not working for them. Uh, they were facing essentially stasis in, in terms of their revenues. They had very big brands um, that had significant market share, but there was very little growth uh, on the revenue side. Um, on the cost side, costs were increasing, costs of maintaining a brand because there was competition. They had to spend more on advertising in order to compete with competitive brands that were almost as good as their brands in terms of product features and so on. So in terms of revenues, there was no growth. And in terms of costs, costs were increasing. So this was crunch time for Procter & Gamble. And this, um, these tough times became an opportunity to do radical systemic change around their business model for innovation. And then there is the story of how Amazon.com used a business innovation model that still resonates today. Increasingly recently, there's been an interest in so-called business model innovation, which actually goes beyond just looking at your operational side or your revenue side, but looks at the whole system, your revenue model and your cost structures, 
and thinking creatively about the whole system might be a, a more creative uh, response to a recession. So that's about introducing a new business model, if you like, yeah. going back to, to scratch and, yeah. and putting your heads together and getting around the drawing board. Absolutely. So actually the recession or tough times might be an opportunity to go back to, uh, to basics, to ask yourself, what does our business look like as a whole? What is our revenue model? What, is our, what, what are our cost structures? And how can we use the, the pressures of the recession to really rethink how we do business? So you've got a story of Amazon, and it's now famous for when it sold books through the internet, the long tail story, isn't it? Can yeah. you tell us? Amazon is a very good example of business model innovation. Um, and uh, as I said, business model innovation is about rethinking your cost structure and your revenue model. Uh, Amazon has aspects of both. Uh, but let's talk about the revenue model first. Um, they hit upon, um, in this case with, uh, with the advent of the internet, a way to engage customers who were not being served before, the so-called long tail. These are people uh, who are maybe many in number, but uh, tend, to, uh, tend to want to buy rare or infrequently uh, bought books. Uh, now, traditional the traditional business model, which is bricks and mortar retailing, did not and could not serve these people. This long tail was essentially ignored because uh, of uh, the way traditional bricks and mortar retailers do business. They have a physical location, and there are limits on how ma how many books you can store in a physical location. And of course, uh, from a cost perspective, and this is why we have to look at the cost side as well, it becomes too costly then. To, to store rare books or infrequently bought books. So Amazon was able to tap into this long tail and serve them, uh, a part of the market that was underserved. And don't forget, says Professor Prabhu, you never quite know what might come out of these tough times because necessity definitely is the mother of invention. As the adage goes, necessity is the mother of invention, but I'd like to stretch it a bit and say that necessity is the mother of innovation, um, which begs the question, what's the difference between invention and innovation? I think the distinction is important. Invention, in my, to my mind, is merely the identification of an idea that may or may not have commercial value, whereas innovation is the commercialization of that idea. So uh, someone may have um, invented penicillin, uh, as Alexander Fleming did. He discovered it, but it took Merck uh, uh, the better part of uh, 20 years to actually commercialize it to the point where it made economic sense uh, for it to be manufactured in large scale and where a large number of people could actually use it uh, and benefit from it. Returning to the old ways may be something we need to consider. Braver thinking is needed and the past may have some good lessons for us. Nick Butler, former chairman of the Cambridge Centre for Energy Studies, has just formally launched a new Keynes Society. I think uh, the world is facing uh, bigger problems uh, than it has faced for many years and we need something uh, uh, to question the orthodoxy that has got us to where we are. 
and I'm an economist. I read Keynes when I was a student here in Cambridge. I've gone back to it recently and I'm uh, reading it in detail and I'm really struck by the sense that he has that you can open up debates, you can look at different ways of doing things, you can put the private and the public sector together, you can use the academic world as well as business and what I want to do is to open up the debate. I don't have a new orthodoxy to propose, I just think that uh, as things are going uh, we're in trouble and I'd like to make a small contribution from a Cambridge base to get us out of that trouble. The recent focus of economists on monetary policy to the exclusion of all else has failed us, says Butler. We did pursue Keynesian economic policies after the Second World War and they served us very well for many decades. I think we've uh, gone back over the last two decades to a rather simplistic belief that pure markets can solve everything. Uh, we're now seeing that that isn't the case. The market in banking and finance, for instance, uh, because people are greedy and the rules weren't right, has uh, put us into real difficulty. To get out of that, we need to use all the tools at our disposal. And Keynes, uh, he didn't have a, a pure, worked-out, complete theory. or didn't have a polished diamond. Uh, what he believed in was creative pragmatism. And that's what I think we need now. We need parts of the market system, but also we need the use of public power, public spending, and the encouragement of individuals to do the right things. Uh, so I'm advocating a new balance, and I th want to open up a debate so that people contribute in the areas they know about to say things that have not been say sayable in the last 20 years of crude um, laissez-faire economics. So why do you think economics recently, in particular monetarism, which Mrs Thatcher followed, has lacked creativity? Because you do say economics hasn't been creative enough. Well, you look around. Uh, I think the mess we're in, the very poor public services in many parts of the country, the slums that still exist in a prosperous country like this, uh, the fact that there are still very poor schools, the fact that there are, not in Cambridge, but in many parts of the country, very poor and underfunded universities. We think uh, we are a prosperous country, and in many ways we are, but within the prosperity there is a lot of squalor. And so I don't think that these laissez-faire market forces dominated economics have produced very good results. What I want to do is to open up ideas to find a different balance. So would Keynes have approved of the bank's bailout? Would Keynes have approved of Britain's and America's economic policies at the moment? Would he have approved of the bailout of the banks or perhaps wanted those who were bailed out nationalised? I think, uh, well, I wouldn't dare to speak for him. He's a great man and I much admire what he did. Uh, my view perhaps is that he would have uh, said it's like building this boulevard on the south side of the Thames. It's fine but it's not enough and we need to think a bit bigger. Nick Butler also thinks it's a great time to use economic policy to clear our energy slums and by that he means invest in new green technologies during the recession, in true Keynesian style, to allow Britain to meet its targets of an 80% reduction in carbon emissions 
by 2050. Now I think we have what I call energy slums, so old-fashioned, high-carbon, very dangerous uh, types of fuel that we are uh, dependent on, and also fuels where we're dependent on risky and uncertain countries around the world. And so what I want to do is to clear the slums and get to a new sense of energy security. So the proposal uh, to cut emissions by 80% by 2050, could you see as perhaps putting our foot on the accelerator during the current recession to make your hopes come true? Uh, absolutely. I don't think that target, which is the right target, I don't think it will be achieved on the government's current policies. I think what we need is to really incentivise uh, private companies and individuals to invest in the technology which is available and in the science and engineering uh, which is coming through so that we make that shift. Uh, I don't think we'll do it unless we make such a shift. Right, so if I am Barack Obama or if I am Gordon Brown, how do I say Nick Butler's ideas are fantastic, come on, let's do it. What would you start by doing? Would you just spend, spend, spend or just scrap all the current energy policies? No, I, I think a lot of the current policies are right. What I think they, both leaders and many other leaders around the world need to do in addition is to create a real incentive for pension funds, for individuals, for big companies, small companies to invest in this area of low carbon uh, energy and energy efficiency. And what I'd suggest is a 10-year tax break on all profits from investment in those areas.